God calls us to wait upon him, and that's what this song is all about. Well, you may be seated. Father, I pray this morning as we now turn to your word that you would come and that you would quicken our hearts. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through 1 Corinthians. Father, we pray that as we consider this table that is set before us, that we would indeed have ears to hear and eyes to see the gospel. In the wonderful name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Indeed, this morning we continue in our study of the Lord's Supper. Many of you last week said, I had no idea the great history of the Lord's Supper turning all the way back to God's deliverance in the Passover of God's people in Egypt. And indeed, that is a beautiful truth. Notice with me this morning. Um, Our goal in this study, and this is that second line that is there, and uh, I want you to just notice this, our goal in this study is to understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper and God's purpose for it in our lives. Um, the, the, The meaning of the Lord's Supper is a very profound, profound truth. If you don't have an outline, we have some guys here that have one for you. Lift your hand. And those of you that are new to us, we just want to say we study the Word of God in depth. Usually we're working our way through a book of the Bible. Right now we're working our way through this, this great doctrine of the Lord's Supper, through this ordinance, this order from God. And so notice on your outline there the review. From last Sunday, we looked at the Old Testament origin was of the Lord's Supper was God's deliverance of his people from what country? From where? From Egypt. When the death angel or when death passed over the homes of the blood of, with the blood of a lamb applied over the doorway. So God had given instructions. I am going to come and take the firstborn of every home that does not have the blood of a lamb spread over the doorway. And they were to not only Uh, sacrifice the lamb, but they were also to eat the lamb. They were to consume the lamb, all of it, as part of the symbolic picture of the Messiah who would eventually come. Now, they didn't understand that at the time. They were obeying, and they were obeying God before his great judgment would come over Egypt, and they were delivered. And not only were they were delivered from the death angel that night, but what else? They were delivered from where? They were delivered from Egypt. They finally were delivered from the slavery that they were under. In fact, the Egyptians came bringing their watches and bringing their necklaces and bring. They didn't have watches, I know. Charlton Heston did have one in Moses, but um, <clears throat> I don't know if you know that. They, it was one of those things. You look it up. But anyways, in one of the old movies. But they came bringing all of their gold, and they said, go, 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 leave us. And God delivered them from their oppressors. This was the great picture of God as deliverer. Notice the number two here. God commanded his people to annually remember his rescue by the Passover meal. They were called to have Passover every single year, and there were certain things that were part of that very, very specifically laid out that they were to remember and to teach their children, this is when the Lord delivered us. The Lord is our deliverer. Notice number three. We saw last week that Jesus and his disciples celebrate the last Passover supper. So it's often called the Last Supper, but it's the last Passover supper on the night before his crucifixion. The symbol of the Passover lamb gives way to the actual lamb of God. Now that's a very important concept for us. The symbol, the symbol of the Passover lamb when Jesus dies on the cross gives way to the actual lamb of God. You see, Jesus told them that night, Jesus would tell them, do this in remembrance of what? Of me. No longer is it in remembrance of the deliverance of Egypt. That's an important thing for us to see, that Jesus was saying, now when you celebrate this, and he's giving them a new way to celebrate it, which is this table. Now when you celebrate this, you're no longer celebrating 
God's deliverance from Egypt alone, but far more. You're, you're celebrating, look at this, the focus moves from a deliverance from an earthly bondage, that's to the Egyptians and Pharaoh, from an earthly bondage to a deliverance from what? An eternal bondage, the bondage of sin and death. And so, the, the, the great picture of the true Messiah, not just the symbol through a goat or through a lamb, but now the actual sacrifice itself, God in the flesh, Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, would come and give up his life for our life. And so, um, now this morning as we come to this, so that was last week, this morning as we come to this, what we, what we want to do is to look through in this series some passages that will help us. And I dare say that you've probably never heard a sermon about the Lord's Supper from the passage we're going to look at this morning, but yet it is so apropos. It is so appropriate. It is, it is the beautiful picture of what this service does, what this Passover meal of the Lord Jesus Christ points to. Now, I want to remind you, we're about to read 1 Corinthians, and some of you have grown up in church, and you kind of know that the first, the, the letter, the 1 Corinthians, that's the first letter written to the Corinthians, that that letter was a scathing rebuke for them because of their sin, and that is, that is very true. Those of you who are new to us this morning, you're new to studying the Bible, understand that there was a church in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. So, there's a church in Corinth, and that church, after Paul and the others had gone and planted that church, and then they went on, trouble came about in the life of the church. The world's values came into the church. There was gross immorality in the church, and there was gross idolatry in the church. People were coming, and they'd say, oh, yeah, I like this Christian thing. This is kind of cool. I like these people. They're different. And they would say, but I also still like the world. And maybe, I mean, in one case, I still like my mother-in-law. I mean, I mean, it's just really, really strange things that were very immoral that were going on. And Paul says, even pagans don't do what you guys are doing. Even they know that this is wrong. And so we see that there was a lot of correction and a lot of heat in 1 Corinthians. And uh, so with that in mind, I want us to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22, and I want you to see how the Lord's Supper shows up in that mess, okay? So Christians, tune in here. Um, if, you, if you're kind of checking all this out, understand that in Christianity, we recognize that, that we're messed up. In Christianity, we recognize that we're prone to sin, and even people who claim Christ, and some of them are, and they're struggling in sin. That's, that's like me sometimes, but there's some who think that they're Christians. They think that they're Christians because of this whole picture of cultural Christianity, but yet they have no idea what it really means to know and to love God. And so the Apostle Paul is seeking to bring about a correction in them. Now, I also want you to notice that on the right-hand side, you see a bunch of Scripture references. For those of you who are new to us, EX stands for Exodus. There's just not room to list all of these out. Romans, uh, R-O-M is Romans, D-E-U-T is Deuteronomy. So you can kind of figure that out as you start studying the Bible a little bit. But notice that most of these passages that are cross-references to the verses are from the Old Testament, and they are showing what was happening with God's people in the Old Testament era, and we're going to see that Paul is referencing that. Now, there were many Gentiles and many non-Jews in Corinth, but the Apostle Paul is writing to them, assuming that they understand Jewish history enough through the proclamation of the gospel that they can get his meaning in this. But look with me here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 through 22. Look what it says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. This is talking about the cloud leading them through the wilderness. 
This was when they were delivered from Egypt, and they were coming through the wilderness. And all passed through the sea. That's talking about the Red Sea. You remember that Moses, God through Moses, parts the waters. The Egyptian army is coming to destroy them. The waters rise up and part. They go through on dry land. So God leads them with a cloud. He parts the waters for them. I mean, as dramatic as it gets, a deliverance. And verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The whole picture of this is these were, were to be God's people do, excuse me, doing what God had called them to do, to follow him, and they are together in that. In verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food. If you can't write above that, manna. God had given them manna, but Paul is talking to them, and he's writing about a food that is not only from God, not only manna, but he's referencing something even more, which is the truth of God. Verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, and this is the picture of knowing again the history is important, that they come and God causes water to come out of a rock. They're about to die of thirst. There is no water around them, and God causes living water, water that's going to bring life to them, to come out of a rock. What is all this showing? What is all this showing? God is delivering them. He's taking care of them. He is rescuing them. He's seeing them through the wilderness of this life. So we're seeing very physical um, illustration, very physical work of God taking care of their needs. That's what he did when he delivered them from Egypt. And the apostle Paul is saying, oh, but it's so much more than the physical. Look what it says in verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Here it is, that Christ, the idea is that Christ spiritually was with them all through their experience in the wilderness, that the second person of the Trinity was present in the water, present in the circumstance of this. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, this is amazing, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Right below the phrase, God was not pleased, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and particularly verse 1 through 6. There we see that it says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Without faith it is impossible to please God. And what we see is that even after God did these miraculous, amazing things in delivering them, God is not pleased with most of them. And why? Because they did not have faith in God. You see, everything rises and falls upon trusting in God and looking to His deliverance, resting and hoping and relying on his deliverance. So they were overthrown in the wilderness. You see, their lack of obedience, their idolatries, their sexual immoralities caused them to be the generation that would not be allowed to make it all the way to the promised land. Instead, for 40 years, while that generation died off, they remained in the, in the wilderness. And so they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, this afternoon, a great thing for you to do would be to go and to look at verse 1, the Exodus 13, 21 and 14, 22, Romans 6, 1 Corinthians, Galatians 3. That would be a great thing for you to do this week, maybe even this afternoon, to go and to look those up. Read the story of what God was doing with the nation of Israel and how it shows up here in Corinthians in the New Testament. So he's... He's going on. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place, look at this, as what? Examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. 
As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example. So you look in verse 6, he says it's an example, and in verse 11, he says it's an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You say, well, that was 2,000 years ago when this was written. The end of the age didn't come for them. No, but listen, we are what we call in the last days. Since Christ died, rose again, ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit has come, we are in the final era. We share that with the Corinthians. Now, I personally believe we're kind of toward the end of the final era. I think we're coming up on the end of the end. But for 2,000 years, much of the same, very, very same applications and perspective the church has enjoyed for the last 2,000 years. And that's what we see here in verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's us, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He's saying, look, Corinthians, you don't have to give in to all this stuff around you. You don't have to. You think you do. You think there's, you're powerless to go against it. You think there's no way to really deal with this. But he's saying you don't have to give in to the godlessness. You don't have to give in to the sexual immorality. You don't have to give in to the worshiping other gods as the Corinthians were doing all around them. Friends, we live in such a similar day as the people of Corinth. I mean, Corinth was a wicked place, and there's a reason for that. It was a narrow place between the Greek islands with a big commerce city, and so sailors were there all the time. In fact, the ships would come up, and they would pull the ships out of the water and roll them on logs some three miles down to the Aegean Sea and dump them back into the water. And so while that was happening, the sailors were free to go in town and carry on. It took days to get the ship where it needed to go. And so there were just, you know, I, I love sailors. Some of y'all are sailors. I love you, kiss you, you're great. Um, but, you know, sailors by and large, I mean, there's a reason we say, man, that guy curses like a sailor. I mean, it's often a rough crowd. Why is often the case? Well, because there's no accountability in their lives. They travel around the world. They don't have family. They don't have friends. They don't, they don't have people who really know them very accountable, so they just kind of be who they want to be, be who they are. And so Corinth was filled with that. Not only that, but people coming with all kinds of ideas from all over the Roman Empire and all kinds of new sexualities and new, new perversions. And so Corinth was an exceedingly evil place. It was, a, it was certainly a hard place to be a Christian. But here we see that our lives today are not so very different from that. I mean, every imaginable perversion is available to us at the end of our fingertips on the phone. And it's, it's being broadcast to us. It's being inundated to us just over and over again into our children. And so we see that the Apostle Paul is dealing with this church that is struggling to be holy, struggling to be who God has called him to be, and we can find ourselves in a very similar light. Notice here in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, what does it say? Flee from idolatry. Can you guys read that, that sentence, verse 14, out loud together? Let's read it out loud and good and strong. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Verse 15, he says, I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. 
the cup of blessing that we bless or that we're thankful for, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So the cup that we observe at the Passover supper, the cup that we observe at the Lord's supper, he's saying, does it not show us Christ? The, the bread that we break, does, is this not Christ that we are sharing? He's saying, we have a, diff, a different identity than the world. Verse 17, because there is one bread, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is, we're in Christ. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? You see, they bring their sacrifice to the altar. They, they, bring, they, they give that up. They participate in the sacrifice, and then they consume it. He's saying that they're in this. This is, has this is costed them, and this is as part of their sacrifice, participating and pointing to Christ. Verse 18, Consider Israel, the people of Israel, are not those who eat the, part, the sacrifices participants in the altar? Look at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You, look at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Don't flip the page. Listen. Here the Apostle Paul is helping us see that the world is seeking to invade. And the Corinthian people, yes, there were, there were idols being, being sacrificed to by Corinth, by the city, and they would take that meat and they would, in a very similar way, even as we would say the Lord's Supper, they would sacrifice the idol and then they would eat the meat from those idols. And there were Christians, listen to this, there were Christians who were going and fellowshipping with pagans who did not know Christ, and they would participate in their dinners of sacrifice to pagan gods. So there were Christians who were going along with the world in the world's ways. And they kind of didn't think it was any big deal. Oh, we're just eating together. What, what's the real harm in that? And, but we start to see here, and he gives some hints in other places in Corinth, in, in the letter of Corinthians, that they're actually participating. They're actually indulging in the worship. And so we, as Christians in this day and time, we can start to look and see how the world is making its way into our lives, maybe into our homes, maybe into our phones, and we can kind of go along with the world, not being distinct from the world, not being holy, but being just like the world. You see, if your Facebook and your Instagram and all of your social media looks like everybody else in the world, the way you dress, and what you do, and the way you talk, and the anger, or, the, or the whatever it is, the obsession with the world, that's a pretty good indicator that you're you're floating in the stream with the world. If somebody can look at the things in your life and they, they can come and they can look in your home or they can look in your children and they, they can look in, yes, your social media, whatever it is, and they can't see something that's pretty distinct from the world around us, this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. You have entered in to the worship of this present age instead of the worship of the ancient of days. And the Apostle Paul is saying, Corinthians, you cannot do that. You're deluded, you're deceived. So what we learn here though is, I want you to see this, um, what we learn here is 
that the, that the Lord's Supper has an interesting and powerful effect. And we've heard the term during COVID in the last year or so, the term prophylaxis. Prophylaxis. We, we, we talk about, is this medicine, can it be used prophylactically? What, what does that mean? Except notice this, when we talk about prophylaxis, I want, I want you to notice this. It's from the Latin pro, which means before, in the Greek, this isn't on your outline, this is just for fun. Uh, but I want you to see how this, apply, this is how God is using and how the Apostle Paul is showing us that the Lord's Supper can help us. If you use a medication prophylactically, that means it is, it is in the act of guarding you against it. So the idea is, is that if you take this, you won't get the disease, okay? It, it's, it's there to help you. And we, we, we have several different examples of that. But, the, but if you get the disease, then it's a different strategy in how you take the medicine. Maybe a different medicine, maybe the same medicine, depends on which one it is. But then it's used therapeutically. And therapeutically means that it's used to minister to or to treat medically. So you can either use a medicine prophylactically, prophylactically if it, it works to prevent the problem, or therapeutically if you've got the problem. Okay, you see that? We've talked about different medicines, remdesivir and all of these, ivermectin, all of these others, and um, there, there's this discussion of that in our minds. Well, I want us to see this morning that there's things like malaria. You th think about malaria. We, we don't deal with the malaria here in the United States, only about 10,000 cases a year, but listen to this. The great problem of malaria, last year, or 2019, 229 million people had malaria. And out of that, there were 409,000 deaths. And this isn't just like COVID coming through once a century type thing. This is year after year after year after year. Malaria is a great problem. We used to live in Africa. And thankfully, in North Africa, we don't have much of a problem with malaria. But sub-Saharan Africa, this is a big deal. And you know who what malaria usually kills is children, um, children in sub-Saharan Africa. But there are drugs that are given. There are drugs like chloroquine and several of the others that, that are given that can, that can come along and protect from that or treat therapeutically like that. Now, why do I share that with you? Here's the, here's the reason. The Lord's Supper acts like a prophylactic to idolatry. It's a preventative. It will guard you. If you spend time with the body of Christ around the table of the Lord and you carefully consider the great sacrifice of the Holy One of, of Heaven that would come and lay down His life for us and in love take your sin upon Himself and set you free. When you think about that truth, that will guard against you loving and serving the world and the things that are not of God. It will act prophylactically. Well, what about when the world comes in and deceives me and gets my heart and I fall into deception and I, I'm, I'm worshiping things I shouldn't worship. I'm living my life in a way that I shouldn't live my life. Well, see, the Lord's Supper can work therapeutically. That it's a, it's a reminder, it's a call to stop and to repent and to turn to God. Now, my friends, you don't just think, oh, well, this will counteract it, and I can go on sinning. You need to read Romans 6. Romans 6 said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin continue to live therein? You see, we don't, we don't come and partake this table thinking, oh, well, this is like the antidote to my sin, and I, I can go on and sin because I'm remembering in celebrating Jesus' death for me, the Bible would say that person should not think that he's a believer. We don't regard, we don't hold on to sin in our heart and partake in this table. 
We forsake sin. We leave it. We repent of it. We turn away from it. And we partake in this table. Otherwise, you bring God's judgment upon yourself. Turn the page and notice with me here. What we see in these verses is very powerful. We're going to move very quickly through this this section. Number one, there are many who claim God, but few who truly honor God. There are many who claim God, but there are few who truly honor God. Notice with me, verse 1, and you may have to flip back and forth or just have your Bible open. It's a wonderful thing to have your Bible and to open your Bible. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and and notice that number 1 comes from verses 1 through 5. Look what it says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud. You see, they're very religious people. They've been delivered by God. They, They seem to be in the nation, verse 3, and they all ate the same spiritual food. God fed them. They drank the same spiritual drink. They're drinking living water out of a rock representing Christ, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That is, the rock was Christ. So this deliverer is with them in the darkness of the, of the wilderness, verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You see, there's many who think of them, they claim God, they think of themselves as godly, but they do not truly honor God. Notice the first bullet point there. These people have seen and experienced God's mighty hand of deliverance from Egypt, but they had had missed what it means to truly know and honor Him. You know, there's people in the church, they've been around the gospel all their life, and they've seen God's goodness all their life, they've heard the gospel all their life, and yet somehow they just continue to live in their sin, not honoring God, not looking to God, not trusting truly in God. They're being religious, but not filled with faith. You see, these perished in the wilderness. And this is when our church talks about cultural Christianity versus biblical Christianity. We say that the true message of the Bible is very different than the message of much of American cultural Christianity. In much of cultural Christianity, we see it's, it's all about being here, it's all about looking good, it's all about doing these certain things that you feel better about yourself, maybe doing things to appease God, basically based, really running on works-based salvation instead of the tremendous grace of God that's seen through the cross. And we've often said that cultural Christianity, listen, cultural Christianity will take you somewhere. Where will it take you? It'll take you, it'll take you merrily to hell. It'll take you happily to hell. It'll take you where you think everything's wonderful to hell. Well, that's what we see in this. And Paul is warning us. He's warning Sheridan Hills, don't be the kind of church that thinks that you look good and you're the people of God, but yet you love the things of the world and you worship the things of the world. Notice the next one, number two. There are many warnings in Scripture to turn away from worshiping the gods of this age. It comes at us over and over and over again. Don't worship the gods of this age. Look at verses 6 and 7 in the next passage there. Now these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down and eat and drink and rose up to play. The whole picture is that they simply are not walking with God and they are destroyed. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Number two is this picture of we are being warned. You see, it's important for you to recognize First bullet point there is, idolatry does not only refer to carved idols in graven images. 
We need to understand that one of the main sources of our sin, anyone's sin, is idolatry. This is, this, this is the biggie. And this is why the very first commandment that God would give to Moses and to the people was, you shall what? You shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. And the reason it's number one is we are so prone to have other gods. And you say, well, phew, glad I'm not in that age. I mean, I don't have a, you know, carved image. I don't have one of these various types of other images that are there. Glad that that's not a problem for us in this day and time. We don't have, you know, carved images and gods. Friends, let's look at this. Idolatry is, fill this in, idolatry is the worship of anything other than God. Like a noun, an idol can be a person, place, thing, or idea. An idol can be any of those. You can worship a person, you can worship a place, you can worship a thing, you can worship idea. And you don't have to have music and sing to it to worship to it. No, you, it's the type of thing that you meditate on all the time. It's the type of thing that you sacrifice for, the thing that you sacrifice for. You know, I'm not saying that you shouldn't sacrifice to, you know, to build a business. You shouldn't sacrifice to have a home. You shouldn't sacrifice to, to do things that, that are, are, are normal and good to do. But the picture is this, is what is going on with your heart? What do you value most? And when you start sacrificing for things, when you start choosing them over other things, you need to start to evaluate, do I, do I put God far and away first in the things that I sacrifice for? You see, an idol can be your status. Some people are obsessed with a certain status. An idol can be a career or a business. It can be money. Huh. Anybody want to circle phone? I mean, you'll go way beyond your budget to have that phone. You'll go way beyond this. You'll go beyond, and if you get separated from your phone, your heart starts beating fast. And you, you know, what else do we see? Leisure. How about sexuality? In sex, there, there's things that you would say, man, Pastor, I, I do really good about honoring the Lord and so many things, but man, I'm just, you know, I still, I still greatly struggle with my sexuality. And I, I, I seem to have no control over that. I seem to not be able to get that one under control. Listen, it's an idol. It's an idol. Sports, hobbies, other relationships, appearance, self. All of these things and many more are the things that we sacrifice for, the things that we place ahead of God. And this is what the Apostle Paul is, not talking, is talking about. He's not only talking about an idol at a temple that you would go and sacrifice in that way. Notice the next part here. The idea of worship comes from worth. It comes from worth. It, it's what has the most worth to you? That's the question. What do you value the most? What do you value the most? Notice here, that is what you worship. So the Apostle Paul is saying, don't worship these things. What about number three? Number three, there is certain destruction for those who worship the gods of this age. Verses 8 through 10. Notice verses 8 through 10. Notice either turn it over or look at the screen. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some did. You see, that's an idol. And 20, 23,000 of them fell in a single day. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some did and were destroyed by serpents. We nor grumble as some did and were destroyed by the destroyer. There's a certain destruction that comes from being obsessed with other things. You see, the idolatrous Israelites are examples to, of us that 
you can be very religious and yet, as Pastor Billingsley used to say, bust hell wide open. You can bust hell wide open from the seat in this building. And from all of your little religious things that you hold out, though, against God in place in place of Christ. That's what this passage is about. God was serious about their sin, and he's serious about our sin. He's deadly serious about it. Look at what we just read. Scores of people being held accountable for their sin against God. And why was it written down? Why did it happen? And why was it written down? As an example to us, says it in verse 6, says it in verse 11, this applies to us. Oh, Sheridan Hills, may we take this table seriously. May we take this table carefully. May we come to this table genuinely, purely. May we be careful in what we do in the way we live our life. Look at number four. Not only number three is there certain destruction, but number four, there's certain hope for those who worship Christ in humility and faith. You see, that's what God calls us to. Right, right below the word humility, repentance. You can repent. You turn away. You don't think that you own it all. You don't think that you have the corner on the market on everything. You, you turn away from your sin in humility and repentance, and you look to God in faith. In verses 11 through 13, look what it says in verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Look at verse 12. Therefore, underline it, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Do you see that this is humility? This is how God's people make it. You don't think you've got it. When you think you've got it, it's just a matter of time till you learn that you don't. When I think about various sin traps, and I see a brother, I see a sister, I see another pastor go in down this road that's a horrible road and winds up being a disaster, you know, it's very unwise for us to sit around as pastors and go, what an idiot. Can you believe that? Look at that guy. That never happened to me. You see, the pride of thinking that you've got it together is what will cause you to fall. But when our hope and our reliance and our humility and our faith are in the cross of Christ and in the hope of the Holy Spirit, that is what gives the strength to be who God has called us to be in a fallen world. We depend upon God. Notice number four. The certain hope for those who worship Christ is humility and faith. Those who worship Christ receive instruction. That's what it says in verse 11. You, it, they, they see the example. We saw it in verse 11. They see the example, and it's written down for them, and they listen to it. The second bullet point, those who worship Christ are to develop careful in a, hum, a careful and humble mindset. They don't think that they stand. They realize they could fall. They're careful about the way that they're walking. We're told in the Scripture over and over again, be careful how you walk. Walk carefully in the truth. Don't walk as the unwise. Walk as wise. What about the third bullet point there? Those who worship Christ learn that God always provides an escape from sin. You see, there's many who think, well, there's just no way for me to under, overcome this. Pastor, if you only knew, you know, my libido, then you would know that I just got, you know, I'm just, you know, that, that whole macho thing, and I can't control this. And I'm like, you're not a dog. <laughs> a dog can't control himself. But God's given you a mind, and he's given you his truth. And he said that I, I set you free from the law of sin and death. I break the bondage of sin. And so, what we must see is that 
it's not all about us. It's all about him, and we worship Christ, and he provides the way of escape. I, I just have to tell you that verse 13 is one of the most important verses that I ever memorized as a 19-year-old. And I want to encourage you to memorize that. No temptation has overtaken you, such as common man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I mean, that, that's just one of my life verses. And it reminds me that God is always providing an ejection handle. I think of myself, I'm in a fighter jet, that fighter jet is about to go down, and I'm either going to go down with it, or I can reach up and I can pull the ejection handle and boom, I'm out of there to safety. That's what God gives us. You don't have to sin. That thought that comes along and says, don't do that. You, you don't have to do that. You, if you go down there and you talk to that guy, you're going to get angry and you're going to get in a fight. At that end of the warehouse, stay away from that end of the warehouse when he's down there. Because you, you know good and well, you know that that guy, if you go in that lunchroom or you go in that break room and all of them are going to be sitting there talking and, they're all gonna, and you're going to enter into that and you're you, you, whatever, well, don't go down there. And when the little voice says, don't go in there, don't go in there, that's the way of escape. This is God dealing with us. He provides a way of escape. We don't have to sin. We don't have to live in this. So, number four, there's a certain hope that comes, and it's, it's sure. Number five, we see this. The Lord's Supper gives us every reason to flee all idolatries of this world. And this is 14 all the way through 22. He's saying in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. You see, you're not a dog. You have, you have logic. You can think. You have rationality. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not participation with the blood of Christ? He's saying, aren't you in Christ? Haven't you died to yourself? Let me preach. Let me preach. I, I'm the one preaching. Let me preach. The picture is that we are called to look and see our association with Christ and our association with his people, and that is to be the great rescue that we don't have to go into the idolatries of the world. God calls us to rest and to walk. In Him. Look at this underneath number five. The Lord's Supper reminds us of our salvation in Christ. It's the cup of blessing. That means thanksgiving. When we read in Corinthians in the, in the next few chapters, and that we read about Paul telling about that night when Jesus would do it, says, and when he had given thanks. You see, this is the greatest thing that we could ever be thankful for, that God would come and forgive us of our sins. Notice this as well, that it is not only this salvation in Christ, the cup of blessing, but the Lord's Supper reminds us of our fellowship with Christ in his sufferings and the new life that he has given us. In verse 16, look what it says in verse 16. The cup of blessing we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? But look at this. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. And so this table reminds us of the great sacrifice, and that will keep us from sin. The word participation that is used here is the same word. It's koinonia. It's fellowship. That's why it's, I have it here. And listen to some of these verses, and this isn't on your outline. They're, they're just listed here. But listen to this. Talking about the fellowship that we have with Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, the fellowship of his death. And the idea is, I have died, and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. Um, and that's, notice here, Philippians 3.10, listen to this. Therefore, I know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of of his sufferings 
being conformed to his death. That means I have died to this sin. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 2 Corinthians 1, 5 says, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So we, we identify with his sufferings. And 1 Peter chapter 4 says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. The picture is you continue with Christ now and you will be with Christ then. This is a glorious reminder that comes to us through the Lord's Supper, the great suffering of Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Very important passage for this whole picture. This whole idea that this calls us to leave behind the sins that of the culture that are all around us and the things that so hold on to us. Look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, circle the word if, key word, key word, if you have been raised with Christ. That means if you are found in Christ, if you're identified with Christ, you become a Christian. He saved you. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are where? Above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, he drives it home. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And here's the reason, verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, this is our hope. This is the hope of the table. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this is the glorious picture that the Lord's Supper calls us to leave behind the things that are not from above. Look at the next bullet point there. The Lord's Supper reminds us that our family is in Christ, not the idolatries of the world. You see, part of what he was getting on to them about was the fact that you're going off and your fellowship is in the world and it's causing you to worship the things of the world. And here he's saying, no, remember the church family. You all have a meal together that's very important, and it reminds you of what binds you together. We cannot miss this. Look at verse 17 and 18 on the screen or on your paper. Look at verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So the picture is here, friends, this table is what binds us together. And this table is what causes us to be in the family of faith. Fill this in on your outline. Who do you fellowship with? Are you meaningfully connected to Christ's body? That's the real picture of true Christianity. You see, our source of our kinship, kinship has to do with who's kin, who you're family with. Our source of our kinship or the source of our kinship with each other is the body and blood of Christ. That's why this table is so important. This is what binds us together. As Christ's sacrifice unites us with God, it also unites us with each other. You see, so many people have come to this table year upon year after year thinking that this is, this is just about me and God. This is just very personal, and maybe even they would use the word private. But what the Bible teaches us is, is that, no, this is corporate. This is God's people together. This is what allows Andrew and Brandon to say, man, we have a bond that goes deeper than blood because we are in earthly relations. We have have a bond that is in the blood of Christ, not the blood of our mother or our grandfather. The picture is, is that 
There's no true walking with God apart from His people. In America, we are so individualistic. We are, we are fiercely independent. And that does not go well. That's great for business. It's great for a few other things. But that does not go well for the body of Christ. You're not called to come and sit here one hour every Sunday. Okay, say, oh, you wish, Pastor, hour and a half, two hours. Yeah, I know, I know. You're not called to come and sit here for a period of time that's a very small percentage of your week and leave and say, well, did my duty to God. I'm, I'm with the church. We're called to be brothers and sisters in Christ and to live together, not only in harmony, but in dependence upon one another. And friends, as pressure comes upon us through the culture, which I believe is coming, as pressure comes, we're going to find out who's really in and who's out. Who's here because it's easy and it's nice, and who's here because they say, this is my life. This is my hope. So friends, this table is set for all of these things to remind us, your family is here. And your God is here. This is his body that was broken for you. This is his blood that was shed for you. We'll deal with transubstantiation in the next sermon. Not this one. But the picture is just as he was spiritually with the people in the rock. Now, there were people in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, there were Jews who thought because of the passages in Numbers, they thought that a rock followed the nation of Israel around in, in the wilderness. And there was a whole system of thought with that. And what Paul was saying is, no, Jesus is the rock. God is the rock. He was with you in the wilderness. He provided for you. Stop being so literal. Stop being so religious. Look at the spiritual nature of God that says, walk with me. Trust in me in this life. Friends, this table can help you do that if you will take this table deadly serious. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that we would hear your word this morning and leave the idolatries of the world. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would be careful to evaluate our hearts and ask ourselves, do we value things that come anywhere close to you? Where we spend our time, where we spend our effort, where we spend our money. Are there things that we're obsessed with? Are there things that fear, that we fear more than we fear you? Church family, I just want to ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes and to ask yourself, do, do I really fear other things more than I fear God? Maybe you need to ask yourself, do I fear or do I have affection for other things more than I have affection for God? Well, start to identify them. What is it? What keeps your heart from God? Holy Father, I pray that you would just allow the searchlight of your Holy Spirit to convict us of the things in our life that are barriers to true worship, barriers to true devotion. Maybe it's a broken relationship that we have been unrelenting on. Father, maybe it is, Lord, a hobby or an interest. Maybe it's a sin of sexuality or 
some other thing that we think we can't be free from. Lord, I ask and I pray that you would help us this morning to carefully evaluate our hearts and that we would turn from those things. It's one thing to recognize it. It's another thing to leave it. I pray that we would be like the Corinthians that did turn away from idol worship. In 2 Corinthians, we see that some of them are commended for hearing the warning and obeying. Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn away from our sin and to embrace you and you alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you please stand together?